One of the most notorious and successful heretics throughout Christian history was a man named Arius. Arius was a bishop, and he was the very reason the Nicene Creed was written in the 4th century. That council was called, and that creed had to be written to undo what Arius had infected, had put in to the Christian church. As a matter of fact, there was a time in history where the vast majority of the Roman Empire, including all of its bishops, were almost all Arians. And uh, just as a side note, I think that should give us some comfort. Uh, when our world feels like it's falling apart and everything, it's, it's, it's worse than it's ever been, I assure you it, it isn't. And almost every single generation of Christians has felt that the time that they're in is the worst it's ever been. The Lord gets us through. Uh, the Lord providentially rescued us from an Arian takeover of the whole Christian world. Now, why is Arianism so heretical? Why do I speak about Arianism as if it's so dangerous? Well, because Arianism taught that Jesus was a created being. Arian affirmed that he was a divine being. He had divine powers. He even had a divine nature. But Arius was famous for saying there was a time when Jesus was not. Jesus was created by God the Father, and then Jesus, after being created and giving these divine powers, then created everything else. And by the way, Arians still exist among us today in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses. That is the foundational teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your door. Jesus to them is a created God. He is a God, but He's not the God he is from that God. He is created from that God. Now, why would Arius' teacher believe something like this? Well, because Arius saw two things in Scripture. He saw clearly, and we would agree with him on this, that what Scripture says about Jesus presents to us Jesus as being by very nature divine. Jesus is a divine being. You can't read the New Testament and not come away with that. He is a divine being. He is worshipped as God. He is called God. He has attributed godly powers, like the ability to create all things. But there was something else in Scripture that Arius also saw, and that is that Jesus, while he is occasionally called God, that's not what he's normally called in Scripture. Normally, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. He is not God He's God's son. As a matter of fact, Arius understood the word, the important word that's used in the Bible. This is a biblical word. It's not a historical, traditional word. A biblical word that Jesus is begotten of God. He is God, but he's begotten of God. What does it mean to be begotten? My son Matthew is my, or at least currently as it stands right now, we'll see what the Lord does, but currently he is my only begotten. So Matthew is like me in a sense. He inherited my DNA. He inherited my human nature. So Matthew shares a human essence with me. He shares a, a call and essence with me, if you will. But there was a time when Matthew was not, and I brought him into the world. That's what it means to be begotten. And so Arius said, this makes sense. Jesus is begotten. What does that mean? That means that God created him. And when he was created by God, he received all of God's natural, or forgive me, he received God's nature like Matthew received mine. So he is like God. He has a, a nature similar to God. But he isn't God. He's the son of God. He is begotten of God. And so the Nicene Council met to answer this question. What do we mean when we call Jesus the son of God? What does it mean for Jesus to be the begotten God, the only begotten Son of the living God? Our creed today affirms that He is, and the creed doesn't really explain the terminology. And the reason the Chalcedonian Creed doesn't do that is because they believed Nicaea already covered this. They believed the Council of Nicaea already figured this out, and so they merely took the language that was in that council and put it in. And so what we want to do today is we want to examine this portion of the creed, which defines Jesus as being begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. What do we mean 
when we call Jesus begotten before all ages of the Father? What do we mean when we call him the Son of God? Now, before we answer that, I need to provide an extended list of qualifications to today's sermon. The first thing I want to say is what I am teaching you today is historic. What I'm going to teach you today is the unanimous understanding of Jesus Christ, of the Orthodox Christian Church, for 2,000 years. This is not just something you find in the early church. This is not just something you find in the fathers and the councils. This is not just something you find in the medieval church and the Roman Catholic Church. You find this also in the Eastern Church, and you find this, and this is important for us, emphatically affirmed in the Reformed tradition and in the Lutheran tradition, and in the Anglican tradition. I am not teaching Roman Catholic philosophy today. I am teaching something that has been affirmed by every single genuine Orthodox Christian in every part of the world for 2,000 years. It is only until the last few centuries that people who claim to be Christians and Protestants have started to deny some of the things that I'm going to teach you today. Now, why do I say that? I don't say that to try to establish the truthfulness of what I'm going to say based on history. I don't bring that up to say this is true because everyone has believed it. I'm not trying to appeal to the masses or appeal to authority. Now, I do think it should influence you. I think that if you're standing against every single Christian for the last 2,000 years, that should, that should concern you. But the, the, the main reason I bring that up is because of this. Not everything I say today is going to be strange, but some of the things I teach today is going to sound very weird. It's going to sound really weird. If you've not studied this before, this is going to be very foreign and bizarre to you. And so I want to establish its historicity because I don't want you to think that what I'm saying today are merely the speculations of your young, informally trained pastor who maybe has too much time on his hands. This is not something I came up with in the loneliness of my office Monday through Thursday. This is the Christian faith. So it's going to be weird, it's going to be bizarre, and it's going to be deep. We are really treading into deep waters, but for my conclusion, I'm going to talk about why I still think it was necessary. We are just primarily, we're not so much going to refute Arianism today. Uh, let me just briefly tell you why the Christian church rejected Arius. The, what Arius' view forces us to believe is that there's multiple gods. That there's God the Father and then a separate being, God the Son. And we see all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old, but emphatically as well in the New, that there is only one God. As a matter of fact, the way the Jehovah's Witness, the modern-day Arians, have to get around this is they have to change the Greek translation of John 1.1. 1, 1. In every Bible under the sun, John 1.1 1, 1 in English reads the same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Jehovah's Witness translation had to change that verse from, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And the Jehovah's Witness Bible translation, the New World Translation, is the only English translation that reads that way in all the history of the English language. And if you want to check, well, what are the, um, what are the credentials of the men who made this decision? They went against every single believing Greek scholar that's ever existed. How should I, why should I trust them? Uh, you're not allowed to know that, by the way. So uh, an unknown group of men translated and claimed to be infallible, claimed the entire history of the Christian church got John 1-1 wrong. Um, I don't mean to be rude, but that is not a religion. That's a conspiracy theory. Jehovah's Witness is a conspiracy theory. That's not a religion. Clearly, there is only one God. Arianism is wrong. But nonetheless, Arius, as much as it pains me to say this, still brings up a good point. We still need to understand, why does the Bible refer to Jesus as a begotten son if he's supposed to be this eternal God? And so we are going to dive into that question today. We're going to dive headfirst into the deep end and try to understand what we mean when we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. If you would, turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 14, please. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I want us to focus primarily on verses 14 and 18. Verse 14 begins by telling us that the Word became flesh, and that harkens us back to the beginning of the chapter, which spoke of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, or in the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. So we have this Word, this person who John 1 affirms is fully divine. He is as divine as the God he was with, but yet there's still a distinction between God and the Word. They share a nature. They're both God, no qualification, not a God, not quasi-God. They're both fully God, yet there's a distinction. One is with the other. And then we are told in verse 14 that that Word, the one who existed eternally with God, and that's why John in verse 15 says that Jesus came before him, this Word became flesh, and so we know who we're talking about now. This divine word took on a human nature. And we, we discussed last week a little bit more about that, what that means, that word flesh. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So here's what I want us to see. Referring to Jesus as a Son is not traditional language, it's not historical language, it's biblical language. The text here is telling us that Jesus is God's only Son. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I like the ESV, and I'm not one to criticize Bible translations usually. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I think most of them, not all of them, but most of the popular English Bible translations are good, and there's pros and cons to each. So I, and I don't know Greek, so, so who am I, honestly, to criticize a lot of this New Testament stuff? But I, I just have to say on a preferential level, I, I do not like what the ESV and a lot of the more modern translations are doing. What they have done is they have removed the more ancient word begotten. I really shouldn't say removed because it wasn't necessarily in the English. It's just translated differently. They translate the Greek word differently. But in verse 14, if you read any translation, and this even includes some of the older editions of the New Translations, like the, the New American Standard Bible used to say this, but the King James, the New King James, some of these older ones, in verse 14 will tell you, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. So here we have what is said in the Creed is not just the philosophical musings of some later philosophers hundreds of years after Christ. This is plainly biblical language. When we confess that Jesus Christ was begotten before the ages of God, we are merely reciting 1 John 1.14. Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. And that is the glory he brought with. Apparently, whatever it means to be the Son of God, it comes with a glory, and that's the glory that Jesus brought to earth. He brought the glory of the Son of God. I am the Son, and that makes me glorious, and here I am in my glory. The Word, the Son of God, the only begotten, showed up in flesh. It showed up in flesh. And it even tells us explicitly again, he is begotten of the Father or from the Father. Now, notice what verse 18 says. No one has ever seen God, the only God, and again there, your translation might say the only begotten. That's what most of the older translations, the only God or the only begotten God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So this, again, references back to John 1, 1. The Word, the Son, who was with God, is described here as being the only one who has ever seen God. So the Son has this amazing unity with God the Father that He alone is described as one who sees the invisible God. And He's even described, the ESV says, at the Father's side, a more literal translation would say, in the bosom of the Father. This is an expression used throughout the New Testament. Uh, in the book of John, it's used again near the end, where John himself describes himself 
as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in that passage, Jesus and his disciples are resting, and it says that John rested in the bosom of Jesus. We have in the Gospel of Luke a reference, a parable of the intermediate state of those who die, but heaven has not happened yet, judgment has not happened yet, where do they go? And they go to this place where all the believers are, and it is described in the Gospel of Luke as the bosom of Abraham. To be in someone's bosom is to have an intimate connection and relationship to them. And oftentimes, I have to be careful with this words, but it sort of insinuates a kind of superiority. Jesus is greater than John. John is in his bosom. Abraham is the father of the faith. We believers go to be in his bosom. So there is a kind of father-son relationship specifically used when Jesus is described as being in the bosom of the father. The father is not described as being in the bosom of the son. It is the Son who is described as being in the bosom of the Father. So we see this intimate unity, but we see a kind of father-son relationship of the only begotten. It's really quite profound, and it's honestly quite beautiful. Jesus Christ, the only begotten one, the only one who has ever seen God, who has eternally with God, who has eternally been in the bosom of the Father. And by the way, why do I call God Father here? Again, not tradition, not history, Bible. Notice how quickly John switches from God to Father. When he tells us in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten who is at the Father's side. He is equating God with the Father. So again, all of this language is not philosophy. This is biblical language. And so I wanted to establish right from the get-go that Jesus is the only begotten of God. He is the Son of God. So let's look at three things that will help us to understand what that means. The first one is a very important term that in theology we call the eternal sonship of Christ. That Christ is eternally the Son of God. He has always been the Son of God. We see this clearly in what we've read in John 1, 14 through 18. I want you to notice that it was the Son of God who came into the world. It was the Son of God who had a pre-existent glory, who was in the Father's bosom at the Father's side, who had that glory that he shared with God, and then he brought that glory into the world. So when the disciples saw the glory of the Son, they weren't seeing a glory that was created in human nature. They were seeing a glory that he had already and brought into the world. The glory that Jesus had is the glory he has as the Son of God, and he brings it into the world. So what does that mean? Did Jesus become God's Son in Bethlehem? No. He was the Son of God before Bethlehem. He came into the world as the Son with the glory of the Son and brought that glory to us. He has always existed in the bosom of his Father. He has always existed as the only begotten. And we see this again, turn over just to that famous chapter, famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. The most, and at least in the American world, the most famous New Testament Bible verse of all time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son... Or as your translation might say, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So again, whom did God give to us? His son. What makes John 3.16 so amazing is not that some arbitrary person of the Godhead chose to become a son on earth. What makes John 3.16 so full of love and mercy and grace and truth is that Jesus was already the son and God was willing to give up his son. That's the glory. But I want us to see, it was the Son of God who came into the world. It was not the Word who came in to become the Son. It was the Son who came in to be, the world, to be in the world. So we see that Jesus was eternally the Son of God. That's who He is in His nature. He has always been God's Son. He did not become that. He is the Son of God. And as we mentioned, this comes with a glory, this comes with a relationship that no human, no creature, no angel can dare claim. And so that's why the second thing we need to learn, the first thing we need to know is that Jesus has always been the Son of God. And the second very important thing we need to know is that the Son of God is a divine title. It's a divine term. 
When we call Jesus the Son of Man, we're referring to his human nature. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of David, he was born of Mary. He's a human being. And we saw last week he's a full human being. Not just a body, not just the appearance. He is fully human. He is of Mary. He is of David. He is the Son of Man. When we call him then the Son of God, are we saying the same thing? Is that a title referring to his humanity? No, it's a divine title. So in order for someone to be the Son of God, not a Son of God, the Scripture uses that term all over the place, but to be the Son of God, the only begotten, is, is a title which means you are equal to God. You are equal to God. To be the Son of God means you have a glory that only God can have. Jesus, we are told in John 1 that Jesus had a glory of the Son that he brought into the world. In John 17, Jesus asked the Father, glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before time. And guess what the Old Testament says about the glory of God? He shares it with no one. This is a divine glory that only God can have and Jesus has it. To call Jesus the Son of God is to say His nature is fully and completely divine. Now you might say, I don't believe that. That doesn't make sense to me because a son is inferior to a father. So how on earth could son of a father mean they are equal? Well, let me just prove to you that that is exactly how the New Testament writers and their opponents understood this term. Turn over just another couple chapters to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus just got done doing good and awesome things on the Sabbath, and we know how the Pharisees felt about Jesus upstaging them on the Sabbath. The Pharisees did not like Jesus fiddling around and doing miracles and doing things that they thought were works on the Sabbath. So Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, and then the Pharisees accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And so let's begin in verse 17. 16, they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And so here's Jesus' answer in 17. And then we need to hear John's interpretation in verse 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself God's, or forgive me, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. How did the Pharisees understand the term son of God? When Jesus says, I am the son of God, God is my father, I am the son, the Pharisee says that term means equality with God. So however you understand it is, or however you think it should be understood is irrelevant. The real question is, how did the biblical authors understand this term? How did the Pharisees understand this term? They killed Jesus because he claimed to be the Son of God. And the reason that offended them is because to call yourself the Son of God is to call yourself God himself. It's to take, make yourself an equal with God. So when we confess Jesus is the Son of God, we're confessing two things. We're confessing that he's eternally existed contrary to Arianism. We're confessing that he has always existed as the Son of the Father, and we're also confessing that he is equal in his nature to the Father. Jesus is not a lesser deity. He is fully God. And that's exactly how his opponents understood him. And that's why they killed him for blasphemy, because he claimed to be God by claiming to be the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? Here's why I'm hammering this so hard right now. Because what has happened in the modern era of the church, and I think that there are people who have done this intentionally, but I think there are a lot of Christians who just do this by assumption, naturally. So I'm not, if, in other words, if you have thought this up until this very moment, I'm not trying to condemn you as this evil, mischievous person trying to bring schism in the church, right? But typically what has happened in the 20th century is we have come to understand the title Son of God as a reference to Jesus' humanity. If you were to ask your average Christian, this is just my assumption, I don't have a study to prove this, but my assumption, I could be wrong, is if you were to just go around and knock on every door in Roswell and ask two questions, are you a Christian? Yes. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? I think most people would say, well, because he was born of a virgin. 
right? Because Jesus didn't have an earthly father. He had an earthly adopted father, but he didn't have a true earthly father. So who was Jesus' father? Whoever impregnated Mary. And who did that? God. So Jesus is the son of God because his human nature was created by God. And there is one verse in the Bible that seems to speak of this. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Many Christians think of this way naturally, and there are some Christians who promote this actively. They deny that Jesus has always been the Son, and they say He became the Son in Bethlehem. And that, what that therefore does is that turns the Son of God as a title, which is now addressing Jesus' humanity. Because His humanity is what was created in Bethlehem. And so if He's the Son of God because of Bethlehem, then we now have two titles that both refer to Jesus' humanity. Son of man, Son of God. And we have no title that refers to His divinity. But notice, here's why some people will argue this. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 35. This is after Gabriel has already approached Mary and told her the wonderful news that God has chosen her to be Jesus' mother, and she's confused because she's a virgin. How can a virgin conceive of a child? And notice what the angel Gabriel says to her, verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the ESV makes another interesting translation mark here. I don't know if it's good or bad. But the ESV, and by the way, every translation does this to some degree, so don't think that the ESV is like trying to manipulate you. But the ESV has translated this to, to try to get you to interpret it a certain way. And like I said, technically every translation is, is actually doing that. But they, they want you to understand this in a certain way. And the reason I say that is because the ESV connects here, and by the way, this is grammatically plausible. This is not a, something that you can't do in the Greek. This, this is a valid in, translation of this text. But the ESV is trying to sort of distinguish the Son of God title from his incarnation, right? Because it says that the, the Spirit will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born to you will be called holy, the Son of God. Most of the translations, though, read something like this. The, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy Child to be born will be called the Son of God. And when, it tra- when you translate it like that, what does it seem to be saying? That why do we call Him the Son of God? Because of His virgin birth. Right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will be conceived in a virgin. Therefore, call Him the Son of God. But we have to understand, remember, the Bible must be read in its context. The whole context of the New Testament. And we have to be very careful not building huge monuments of the Christian faith on ambiguous terms. This is a verse that could be translated and interpreted in a multiplicity of ways. The Greek here is not clear. And so we want to be very careful to build important theology on top of this. So how is it that we are to understand Luke 1.35, in light of everything we just saw in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3. We need to understand that this text should not be read as God making Jesus his begotten through the conception of his human nature. As we saw, Jesus was already the Son of God when he said. Rather, the text is saying that his being born of a virgin fulfills the prophecy that he would be the Son of God, the Messiah. In other words, his virgin birth manifests or proves that he is the son. It doesn't make him the son. Right? So let me take a step back. We read today, or forgive me, we read last week from Isaiah chapter 7 that the Messiah, the son of God, the Emmanuel, would be born of a virgin. And so here we have someone born of a virgin. And so what do we say? So therefore, what do you call him? Well, that's the son of God. He was born of a virgin, therefore he is the son of God. So it's perf- it makes perfect natural sense, but what are we saying? We're saying that because the son of God was supposed to be born of a virgin, that Jesus was born of a virgin, we know he's the son of God. So call him the son of God on that basis. So again, the virgin birth is not creating his sonship. It's revealing his sonship. It's manifesting, it's proving his sonship. If, if, if Jesus were to walk down the streets of Jerusalem and say, I'm the son of God, 
And they would say, no, 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 you can't be the son of God because your dad is Joseph. The son of God had to be born of a virgin. And Jesus would say, well, he's my adoptive father. I was, I was actually conceived of a virgin. Then they could say, oh, okay, well, then you are the son of God. Again, notice they are not saying his virgin birth made him the son. It revealed he is the son. Called Jesus the son of God. Why? Because he was born of a virgin, which is what the Bible said the already existing son of God would do. In case you're not totally convinced of this yet, I, I want to show one more really important verse. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 1. Passage, if you will. Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what I want us to see. Jesus is given, or forgive me, let's call Him the Word, the Logos. The Word is given two titles in this text. He is referred to as the Son of David, a descendant from David. That is another phrase for the son of man. He was truly human being. He's one of David's true human descendants. But he is also someone else's son. He's not just David's son. He's also what? The son of God. And so we already have here a juxtaposition between the human nature and the divine nature. If someone's going to claim that he is the son of God because God created his human nature in Mary then the Son of God would have to be a reference to his human nature. But we already have a reference to his human nature. The Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of Mary. The Son of God is meant to be juxtaposed to his human nature. So the Son of God is a title that addresses his divine nature, not his human conception. And here's how else we know that. Because how do we know in this text that Jesus is the Son of God? How do we know that? What does the text tell us? Go ahead, someone answer. His resurrection. The resurrection proves Jesus is God's son. Let me ask you this. What relationship does a resurrection have to a virgin birth? When Jesus resurrected from the dead, did everyone who saw him go, oh, that man must have had no earthly father? There's no connection. You will be resurrected one day. Now, you won't resurrect on your own power, which is the difference here. You will be resurrected. Everyone who will be resurrected will not have a virgin birth. There's no connection between resurrection and virgin birth. So if being the son of God means that he had a virgin birth, how does the resurrection prove that? No. What did the resurrection actually prove? That Jesus has a divine nature, a divine power. He has the ability to overcome death. God could have, he didn't, I'm not claiming this, God could have miraculously conceived me in my mother's womb. That doesn't give me the ability to conquer death. Okay, I had no human father. I'm still going to die one day. Adam had no human father. He died one day and wasn't able to resurrect. The resurrection proves Jesus' divine nature, and therefore it proves that he is what? The Son of God. So what is Paul saying in Romans 1? Whatever the Son of God means, it means that you are a divine person capable of conquering death. It's not about his virgin birth. It's about who he is and who he was in eternity in the bosom of the Father. The Son of God, fully equal to God. Now, I, I will say that his virgin birth is fitting. It is fitting. So there is kind of a relationship here. I mean, I, I, I don't know what God would think of this, but to me it seems like a bit of a contradiction if he wasn't born of a virgin to call him the Son of God when he has another dad. He would have two dads. I, I don't think that would be fitting. So I still think that there is a relationship that the Son of God should have had no earthly father. I, I think that's fitting, and I think God did that for a reason. So there is a loose connection there. But I want what I'm trying to purge from your minds is this understanding that Son of God is a human title. 
that it's a reference to Jesus' Bethlehem conception. It's not. It's a, it's a reference to who he is before the incarnation. That's why the creed says, only begotten before all ages. He was God's begotten son before Bethlehem. The son of God, equal to God, had the glory of God, came into the world and showed us that glory and showed us the father that only he knew. And so we have to briefly then address, why do we use the word son and father then? Let me just briefly talk. What have we talked about so far? The son of God, how do we understand that? Number one, it's an eternal relationship. He's always been the son. Number two, it's a divine title. When we tell the world Jesus is the son of God, we are saying he is equal to God. He is fully God. So the last thing we have to explore then is why does the Bible use the term son and father? Why not president and chief financial officer? Why not person one, person two? See, what I'm about to say, this is where it gets weird. This is going to be weird, okay? And if you reject what I'm about to say, and you reject the history of the church, let me just, let me just submit this to you, kindly and lovingly. We have to make sense of the language the Bible has given us. Philosophers did not call Jesus God's only begotten son. God called Jesus his only begotten son. Philosophers did not call the first person of the Trinity the father. It's the other way around. The Bible called him the father and we started calling him the first person of the Trinity. The Bible reveals the Godhead to us as a father-son relationship. That's the language the Bible gives us. And so let me ask you this question. It's rhetorical in the sense I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I do want you to actually answer it in your minds. Is that arbitrary? Did God just say, I don't know how they're going to understand this. Let me just pick some words from a hat. We could, uh, Father, Son, okay, that works. Is this totally arbitrary? Here's what the church has recognized. We have all these biblical teachings about Jesus. He's eternal. He had no beginning and no end. He says in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaking of himself, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the eternal one. Jesus is also said to be God. Colossians tells us that in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He wasn't a partial God. He wasn't half deity. He was fully God. The fullness of God is in Christ. So we know that Jesus is eternal. We know that he is fully God, but we also know that he is begotten from God. And Arius said that makes him created. And the, and the Orthodox Church will say, no, he's obviously not created. But we have to do something with that, don't we? So let me briefly explain how the Christian church has always understood this relationship. And again, it's going to be weird. To gener this, this brings us up a, a doctrine in the Christian church known as eternal generation. Eternal generation. To understand the sonship of Jesus before the ages, we refer to this as eternal generation. The word generate is essentially synonymous with the word beget. To beget someone is to generate them. So generation is essentially synonymous with begotten. Jesus is eternally begotten. He is eternally generated. God the Father generated Christ. And what does it mean to beget if these terms are the same? Well, to beget, if you look up in a dictionary, it's going to tell you it means to produce offspring or to cause to exist. And that's why Arius said Jesus is a created being. Begotten means to come forth from or to proceed. So here's what we have to do as Christians. We have to affirm the clear, overwhelming biblical teaching that Jesus is not created. But in some way, shape, or form, he does come forth from the Father. He proceeds from the Father. He is begotten from God. And that is what it means to be a son. And so in a, in, in a mysterious, beautiful way, the Father generates the Son. The Son comes from the Father. In other words, the Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten. The person of the Son, the Logos, originates from the Father's essence. In other words, He receives His existence from the Father. Let me quote to you a man named Matthew Barrett who teaches 
in seminary, and he loves the doctrine of God. He's got a great book. By the way, if you ever want an amazing book on the Trinity, Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett is, is quite phenomenal. Here's what he says. The word generation means coming forth, and with reference to the Trinity, it refers to the Son coming forth from the Father's essence. The concept takes us to the very heart of what it means for the Son to be a Son. He is eternally from the Father, which is why he is called Son. To be more specific, in eternal generation, the Father from all eternity communicated his name, his perfections, and his glory to the Son. From all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple undivided divine essence to the Son. So why is Jesus the Son of God? Because the, the God the Father communicates what Jesus is. Jesus, the Word, gets his existence from God the Father. Now, here's probably what you're saying. That sounds an awful lot like creation to me. That sounds like a created being. And this is where the word eternal comes in. We don't refer to Jesus as being generated. We refer to him as being eternal generated. So what we're saying is that Jesus has always eternally been the recipient of his personhood from God. There was never a point in which Jesus didn't exist and then the Father created him. They've always existed in this relationship of generation. They've always existed in this relationship of generation. So the son does receive his origin from the father, but that never happened in time. He's, it's in a perpetual state of reception from the father. Let me give you a, a loose analogy to help you with this. No analogy is perfect, remember? Even in human life, analogies are never perfect. That's why they're analogies. But especially when we're talking about the divine mysteries, every analogy is going to fall short. But let me just try to give you an analogy that will, I think, kind of help. I want you to imagine the relationship that a ray of light has to a star. A light beam, a light ray has to a star. What finds its origin in what? Do we have a star because of light or do we have light because of a star? The latter. We have, a, we have light because of a star. And so when we call Jesus the Son of God, we're saying we have Jesus because we have God. The reason we have Jesus is because we have the Father. It can't work the other way around. You can't say the reason we have the Father is because we have Jesus. The Father is not begotten of Jesus. So we have the Father and therefore we have the Son. The Son comes forth. He proceeds from the Father, kind of like how light proceeds from a star. But I want you to also notice this. When a star generates light, there's not what we call a temporal order to that. In other words, it's not like God creates a star and then five years later the star says, you know what, I feel like emitting some light today. Let's emit some light. The light and the star always exist together. So there's a sense in which the star created the light because the light generates from the star, but there's a sense in which the star did not create the light because it's not like there was a star and then there was light. They came together. That's, that's just what the star does. That's the star's nature. It is a star and it emits light. So I want you to imagine a star, but imagine it's uncreated. Imagine an eternal star, an eternal sun, S-U-N, an eternal star. The light from that star is begotten, but it's not created. It's eternal with the star. Now here's where the analogy breaks forth, or here's where the analogy breaks. The light doesn't have the exact same substance as the star. So again, it's not perfect, but just to illustrate this point of how something can be generated from something else, but still not created. An eternal star never creates light, but it does beget light. And that's how we understand the relationship of the second person to the Trinity to the first. The reason Jesus is the Son is because he is generated eternally from the Father. Now, I'm going to show you in Scripture where this metaphor comes from, but again... Even if you reject this, I'm not saying you're a heretic, I'm not saying you're outside the Christian faith, but I, do, I just want you to ask, how do you make sense of the father-son language, which is biblical language? Where does that metaphor come from? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. By the way, there are lots of texts that the theologians will go to to, to prove this relationship of begotten. Um, but I just, for time's sake, we just don't have time to get to all of them. But this isn't totally, this isn't just pure speculation, I just want you to know. Um, but there is some philosophy and reasoning happening here to make sense of the biblical data. Turn to the book of Hebrews. 
go through all of Paul's epistles, once you get through Timothy and Titus and Philemon, you find Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. This is one of the premier texts that we have, not just to prove the deity of Christ, but even his begotten sonship. Verse 5 quotes God the Father telling Jesus, you are my son, I have begotten you, I am a father to you, a son to you. But unfortunately, we just don't have the time to get into all that. But here's what I want us to look at, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There are three elements in this text that we have to look at. This text is clearly seeking out to prove that Jesus is not an angel, he's fully God, and it does so in three ways. It tells us first that Jesus has divine power. According to this text, who created the universe? Jesus, the Son. The Son of God made all things. The Father, through the Son, created all things. That's what John 1, 1 through 3 also says. So what does that tell us? If you were a Jewish monotheist, reading Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know that only Yahweh, only God, has the ability to be eternally in the beginning and make all things. That's Yahweh. That's definitely Yahweh. And now what is Hebrews 1 saying about that Yahweh? That was the Son. You see, it's attributing divine power to him. A power that only the full Yahweh has. It says it again by saying Jesus isn't just the one who created the universe. What is verse 3 says? He upholds it by the word of his power. You want to know why you can trust gravity is going to stay gravity tomorrow? Because Jesus is Lord. That's why. Non-Christians have no reason to believe that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Oh, because it, it has every, every day. So what? Things happening in the past doesn't prove they'll happen in the future. How do you know the sun won't How do you know the sun's coming up tomorrow? Because Jesus is upholding the orderliness of the universe by the word of his power. And who can do that? What angel can do that? What man can do that? Nobody. He made all things, he sustains all things, he's fully God. But notice what this fully God is also said to be. We are told he is God by attributing God's power to him. But we also attribute God's glory to him. In verse 2, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This, in the Greek, that word radiance is the same word that was used to describe light that emanates from a light source. The light that comes from a star is the radiance of the star. So here's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. God the Father has a glory. And Jesus receives that glory and then shines it to us. And so that's why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why Jesus can say that I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Because the Father gives to the Son this glory that he then radiates and shines to us. Jesus has a glory that only God can have. But notice the relationship. Jesus is radiating God's glory. It's not God radiating Jesus' glory. There's a primary relationship of God first, Christ second. Not temporal, but in their nature, in their being, it is Christ who gets glory from God and shines it to the world. We also see this same thing, not just in the glory, but in the very nature of God. Jesus is described as having the very nature of God. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Sorry, Arius. If Jesus and the Father share the same nature, then we cannot have one being eternal being and one being a created being. There is no bigger difference between two objects than eternality, creator, creature. You and I have a lot of differences. But we have some similarities. But none of those differences, no matter how wide they might be, none of those are as wide as the difference between creator and creature. It is the fundamental distinction between all of creation. If Jesus is creature, if he's a created being, 
He cannot be said to have the exact representation of the Father, but he has it. He's exactly whatever God the Father is, that's who Jesus is. That's why John 5, when Jesus said, I'm the Son of God, you are, I am equal to God. He has the exact representation of his nature. So why is Jesus called Son? Because again, Jesus is still spoken of as receiving this. The word imprint here was a Greek word that they would use to describe signet rings. Right? So you go to stamp a letter, an envelope, you stand it. And what you do is you would stamp and take it apart. And now you had two images which were exactly alike. Jesus is a, a modern analogy would be calling like Jesus a photocopy of the Father's nature. You've got the Father, you take a photocopy, and you've got the Son, and now they are exactly the same. But one generated from the other. We have an original and we have a copy. Jesus is said here to be the imprint, the copy of his nature, but he's also said to be eternal. So it's a copy that eternally exists. It's a copy that never actually happened. It's just in a perpetual state of copy. So again, this isn't so much philosophy. It's deep. It's deep. But it's not philosophy. This is Bible. Again, Jehovah's Witnesses will go to this verse to say, look, Jesus has to be a created being because you've got the Father and then you take a copy of that Father and that has to happen in time. And the, the ancient Christian just said, says who? How does that have to happen in time when this very verse tells us that he has the eternal nature of God the Father? So in some mysterious, beautiful way, Jesus is a perfect, exact copy of God the Father. That's what we call eternal generation. That's why he's the Son. He is exactly like God. They have the exact same nature. They are both eternal. They have the exact same nature. To see the Son is to see the Father, but one generates from the other, and that's why we call him Son. There's only one God because it's the same essence being generated. There's only one essence, one God, but two persons, and one generates from the other eternally. Here's what I bet you're saying to me right now. I'm still confused. And let me, here's what I have to say to you if you're still I've been laboring for 52 minutes. Lord bless you guys. For 52 minutes, I've been laboring to get you to understand this. And you're probably thinking, I'm still confused. So here's my rebuke. Join the club. Join the club. This is a mystery. I'm not asking you to fully comprehend it. As a matter of fact, when I say join the club, I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about all of the ancient authors who made up these doctrines from the text. Let me read to you what was said by Gregory of Nazianzus in 390. Let the generation of God be honored in silence. It is a great thing, abundantly so, for thee to learn and know that Jesus is begotten. But how he is begotten is not granted to thee to understand, nor indeed even to the angels. Ambrose, writing only seven years later, Roughly seven years later, Ambrose says this, For me, the knowledge of the mystery of the Son's generation is more than I can attain to. The mind fails. The voice is dumb. A, not mine alone, but even the angels. It is above powers, above angels, above cherubim, above seraphim, and all that has feeling and thought. For it is written in the scriptures that the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, if the peace of Christ surpasses all understanding, how much more so does such a wondrous generation be but above all understanding? It's a mystery. And we do our best to apprehend what the scriptures teach without ever pretending like we will fully comprehend what the scriptures let me finish with these points. Why does this matter? I apologize for going so long, but I've, I've been looking forward to preaching this sermon for two months, so it's... Because here's another thing you might be thinking. Why would you teach us this stuff that's just weird and I've never heard before? And quite honestly, what, what difference does it really make? Especially if I can't even fully understand it. I mean, why would you waste my time with philosophy, eternal generation, and eternal sonship? What's the deal with all of this deep stuff? Let me give you a few reasons why I decided that even though we did take a big bite today, I know we took a really big bite today. Let me tell you why I think it was important for that bite to be from the pulpit. Because you see, what most pastors in this country would say is this is a good thing to teach your people, but not from the pulpit. It's more of like a classroom talk. And they might be right. I'm not going to lie. You guys are kind of been my guinea pigs. 
First uh, Samuel, the sermon series in First Samuel has been wonderful, I think, for our affections and our emotions to be reminded that God is establishing a kingdom and he's in control over his kingdom. And so I wanted to take a break from the affection and, and go more cerebral for Christmas. I, I wanted to attack your minds. And, and maybe I overstepped. Maybe this is better for the classroom. But he, here's why I think this needed to be said from the pulpit. Number one, because it's in the creeds. Almost every church that you will find, even the nominal churches, you know, that they don't even tell you whether they're Baptist or president, you know, they're, they're, they're called Flame Church or Energy Church, Resurrection Church, something like that. Even those churches, if you press the pastors and ask, do you affirm the Nicene Creed? Oh, of course we do. Of course we do. Of course we affirm the Nicene Creed. It's, 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 everyone knows it's a mark of orthodoxy. If you can't affirm the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or the Athanasian Creed, you're not a Christian. And everybody knows that. So every pastor will say, yeah, we, you know, we, affirm, we, we don't really have distinctions. You know, we affirm the Nicene Creed. That's, that's basic Christianity. That's who we are. So apparently everyone affirms these creeds, but they refuse to actually teach their people what they say and mean. I don't want to ask you to affirm a creed, to confess a creed, if you don't understand what it means. We read through the Chalcedonian Creed. Can we agree there's some bizarre language in there? Sometimes we're saying things we don't even understand. I don't want to put words into your mouth if I'm not willing to tell you what they mean. So now, I'm hoping you can at least have the start. This is not the end of something. This is the start of something. But whenever you read any creed, and it goes explicitly to refer to Jesus Christ as being eternally begotten from God, you have a smaller semblance of understanding of what exactly that means. If it's in the creed, and we expect you to affirm the creeds, then we ought to expect ourselves to teach it. Number two, the reason this is so unpopular is the term son of God is not some obscure title that is, shows up in one Bible verse. It's the most popular title that Christ has given in the New Testament. His primary identity is, are you the son of God? Are you just some man? Are you just some Jew from Bethlehem? Or are you God's son? It's his core identity. And it's used all throughout the New Testament. Why would we not want to dive deeper into this title? We affirm and read over and over again, the Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of God. Don't you think it's appropriate to stop and take time and say, what does that mean? Another reason is this is crucial to having a fuller, healthier understanding of the Trinity at large. This helps us understand how the persons in the Trinity relate and are distinguished. Right? How does someone who has the exact same nature, how can that person be possibly distinguished from the other? How do we know who's father and son if they are exactly alike? Well, the primary distinction is one generates from the other. This helps us understand the mystery of the Trinity, which is one essence shared by three persons. This helps us understand that. This helps us understand why Jesus Christ came in the flesh, why the Word came in the flesh. I, I remember one time I read a book on the Trinity and I read one book on the Trinity and thought I knew it all. And I actually told a friend heresy. I taught a friend heresy. I taught my friend that any person of the Trinity could have taken on flesh. How silly. Is that really what we believe? That Jesus' incarnation was totally arbitrary? Was the triune God in heaven, the persons, were they drawing straws? Oh, sorry, number two. You, you got the short straw. I guess you have to be the son. Dibs on the father. Dibs on the father. This helps us understand why the names are there. Why does the Bible call one father and son if they're exactly the same? And why did the son come? Why didn't the father come? Why didn't the, the son came because it is fitting that he is the son of the father. The father doesn't come. The father sends the son. Sons don't send fathers. Fathers send sons. This helps us understand the Trinity. It helps us understand the names. It helps us understand what God is doing in the Trinity. And then just the last thing I'll say is that this is our God. I know you're not the one who asked the question. I'm the one, so I'm not berating you here. But if someone were to come up to me and say, I, I don't understand why you would waste an hour of their time getting into all this deep stuff. Because I just don't know how much it affects my life. And I just want to rhetorically ask does every single thing we teach from the pulpit have to have some practical application in life? Or sometimes is it okay just to open up the word and magnify God and be amazed at how mysterious and beautiful and complex he is? Jesus is the central figure of the scriptures. I want to know more about him. I don't care how that impacts my life. I want to know Christ. Give me the son. 
We want to understand who Jesus is. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 16. The chief confession of who is Jesus. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say you're John, the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah returned in the flesh. Those things are easier to comprehend than eternal generation. That makes sense. But those were wrong answers. He wasn't John the Baptist. He wasn't Elijah. So he turns to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And who remembers? Don't even turn there. Who remembers? What is, what is Peter's great confession? The confession that the entire Christian church is built upon. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why would I take time? Why would I take an hour of your time to dive into this? This is the chief confession of Christianity. Other than monotheism, the most important thing that we confess is that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Mary, who is the Son of Man, before that, eternally forever, is the Son of the living God.